thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you back to Post Woke, the podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. This week, for episode number three, I am flying solo because I have so much to say about what's been going on for more than 21 months now. Yes, this will be the pandemic podcast. However, it will not cover the vaccine. I will save that for a separate podcast. For the pandemic podcast, I've put together a presentation much like I did back in the days when I was giving public talks all the time. And for the record, I invite anyone who listens to this podcast and hears my points to respond and retort, but please only do so if you have an evidence-based counterpoint. Now, before we get to all the information, I want to again say thank you for all your support and feedback. This podcasting stuff has been unusual for me. I've written books and appeared in movies and given talks from coast to coast and participated in countless events and movements. So yeah, I've been interviewed more times than I can calculate. With Post Woke, however, I'm suddenly thrust into the role of interviewer, and it's definitely a work in progress. Outside of the tech stuff, I'd say it's my biggest challenge. In addition, I'm still looking for ways to organically work in my notorious sense of humor. So I invite you to stay tuned to witness firsthand how Post Woke continues to evolve and change. And on that note, I will remind you now to check the show notes to learn how to subscribe to Postwoke on my Substack. By doing so, you'll get all my podcasts and articles, plus special bonus content for paid subscribers only. And also in the notes, you'll find my email address. And again, I welcome your sincere feedback and suggestions. After a short break, I will be back with the pandemic episode. The British Medical Journal is about as mainstream as mainstream science gets, but recently they reported about a whistleblower who um, named Brooke Jackson, who was a regional director who was employed by a company that was managing Pfizer's vaccine testing centers in Texas last autumn during the whole warp speed situation. Brooke Jackson reported that the company falsified data, unblinded patients, employed inadequately trained vaccinators, and was slow to follow up on adverse events reported in Pfizer's pivotal phase three trial. Jackson also said that the staff who conducted quality control checks were overwhelmed by the volume of problems they were finding. Jackson emailed a complaint to the US Food and Drug Administration and was promptly fired later that same day. But now the truth is leaking out. It's gotten to the point where Newsweek hardly the bastion of hard-hitting journalism, published an op-ed recently called How Fauci Fooled America. As I read it, I was taken aback because it's read like something I could have written, and it exposes Fauci as the fraud he is and always has been. So clearly cracks in the facade are showing and happening, but it's not nearly enough when we now have five to 11-year-olds getting the jab. It's time to offer strong and convincing counter-narratives. So along those lines, I am offering you this single podcast, a link that you can send to anyone who refuses to question. Again, I will cover vaccines in a future podcast. Now, for starters, I will offer some quick summaries of four high-profile topics. 
the first being masks. What if I told you there is not a single shred of compelling scientific evidence that wearing a mask reduces your chances of being infected by a virus like SARS-CoV-2? Based on 21 months of targeted conditioning, you'd probably scoff at me and say something like, when did you get your degree in epidemiology? Breaking news, you don't need a degree in epidemiology or a degree in anything, in my case, to think for yourself and to learn the truth. All you need is skepticism, curiosity, common sense, and a search engine. If you had those things, you would find out that there are no randomized controlled trials that show mask wearing reduces transmission of a virus. The CDC's pro-mask agenda is entirely based on inherently flawed observational studies. Second topic, social distancing. The gospel according to Fauci preaches the six feet, feet apart social distancing mantra and has from day one. But this mantra doesn't stand up to even the most cursory scrutiny. Did you know that the now carved in stone concept is based on a random theory proposed by a single German scientist named Karl Flug in, wait for it, 1897. Flug lacked anything close to the equipment necessary to set a standard that is still guiding the planet in the year 2021. In fact, the six foot decree has been widely challenged by experts of all stripes and still is. The World Health Organization, for example, set the safe distance to be three feet. As recently as last year, in a systematic review, eight of 10 studies reviewed found that the expiratory droplets could travel more than six feet away from those with infections, and in some cases, up to 26 feet. In another 2020 study, specifically related to COVID-19, researchers found the virus's transmission distance may be at least 13 feet. But still, anyone wanting to look smart or compassionate or sane intones the words six feet apart over and over as if it were based on some reliable data. Even so, a big chunk of humans apparently believe that germs can randomly jump from passing strangers who happen to be 5.9 feet away. The third topic is ivermectin. Equine ivermectin, as the name implies, is made for horses. The FDA approved another kind of ivermectin for humans a long, long time ago. It is meant to treat infections in the body that are caused by certain parasites. Since the start of the pandemic narrative, the National Institutes for Health, NIH, endorsed several studies showing ivermectin can be effective for treating and perhaps even preventing COVID-19. For example, the American Journal of Therapeutics published a study that found Quote, meta-analyses based on 18 randomized control trials of ivermectin in, in COVID-19 have found large statistically significant reductions in mortality, time to clinical recovery, and time to viral clearance. Furthermore, results from numerous controlled prophylaxis trials report significantly reduced risks of contracting COVID-19 with regular use of ivermectin. Close quote. So if ivermectin for humans has the potential to um, address and even prevent COVID-19, why is it being badmouthed by most of the mainstream? Quite possibly because, according to the FDA, 
the only way COVID vaccines could qualify for emergency use, use authorization is if the certain statutory criteria have been met. For example, no adequate approved and available alternatives can exist. Translation, if doctors embrace and prescribe ivermectin, then the FDA couldn't approve the vaccines. The jabs don't rake in billions for big pharma and they don't set the stage for endless boosters. As always, follow the money. And now the fourth topic is the overcrowded ICUs um, narrative. Now I'm gonna quote from an article. Um, not quote, I'll just touch on some, some points. In this article, they mention a tsunami of sick, sick people swamping hospitals in many parts of the country. In Rhode Island, for example, hospitals had to divert ambulances because they were overcome with patients. In San Diego, a hospital had to erect a tent outside its emergency room to manage an influx of people with symptoms. The wait times at scores of hospitals got longer and the situation was stretching healthcare, healthcare to its limits. Now here's the punchline. The article I'm quoting from came out in January, 2018, and it's talking about your standard flu season. In other words, this type of situation is not unusual. A major part of the COVID-19 scare tactics is the storyline about overflowing hospitals and intensive care units. But like everything in the media, it lacks context in the name of fulfilling an agenda. For example, when the media reports that only a certain number of ICU beds are still available in a particular state, you're expected to freak out. They do not expect you or want you to look up just how many ICU beds there are in that state how often they're filled to capacity, and why. For example, did you know that half of the low-income communities in the entire United States have no ICU beds at all? So yeah, it's always terrible to hear about any patients being denied beds, but it is not a sign of how dangerous COVID is or was. It's a sign of how dangerous our healthcare system is and a sign of how much the threat of COVID-19 has been willfully exaggerated. And speaking of willful exaggerations, I'll be right back with the pandemic's foundational deception. As of this recording, the official number of COVID deaths in the U.S. is over 760,000. To arrive at that number and accept that number requires you to have an incredible amount of faith in something called the polymerase chain reaction or PCR test. The PCR test works by converting the SARS-CoV-2 virus's RNA into DNA. Reminder, coronaviruses do not have DNA. The PCR process makes millions of copies of the manufactured DNA by running it through cycles in a process called amplification. The more cycles run, the more the DNA can be copied. If no copies can be made, theoretically, no virus is present. The, the test provides a yes-no answer rather than any indication of how much virus was found how old the virus is, or whether or not the virus is even capable of infectivity. This test is so flawed that in Tanzania, it returned positive results for a piece of fruit. 
According to the University of Oxford's Center for Evidence-Based Medicine, the PCR test is responsible for an unknown amount of false positive results because too many cycles have been consistently run from the start. Even the sainted Dr. Fauci himself has explained that anything over 36 cycles will result in finding only dead nucleotides that create false positives. Meanwhile, over 40 cycles of amplification have been regularly used for COVID testing for the past 21 months or so. These test results have been declared useless by some because anything beyond a cycle threshold of 35 will detect past latent viruses which no longer pose a threat. The probability of a false positive result is as high as 97% at 35 cycles or higher. This very much explains how in the winter before COVID, there were 38 million cases of the flu in the United States. In the first winter during COVID, there were only 1,822. Meanwhile, there have been, as of this recording, roughly 46 million positive COVID tests in the U.S. This means the gold standard COVID test may not be able to tell the difference between different respiratory diseases. In fact, it may not be able to tell the differences between someone who's sick or not. Now this test was invented by a man named Cary Mullis, and he was given the 1993 Nobel Prize in Chemistry for this achievement. Before he passed away in 2019, Cary Mullis stated that his test is quote, incapable of diagnosing disease, close quote, because it cannot distinguish between inactive and reproductive viruses. Mullis had this to say about Dr. Fauci, quote, this man thinks you could take a blood sample and stick it in an electron microscope, and if it's got a virus in there, you will know it. He doesn't understand electron micro microscopy, and he doesn't understand medicine. He should not be in the position that he's in, close quote. Again, that is Carrie Mullis, the late inventor of the PCR test, talking about Dr. Fauci prior to the pandemic. Now, by no coincidence, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control in the U.S., have announced that on December 31st, 2021, it will, they will withdraw the PCS, PCR test to diagnose SARS-CoV-2. They understand that this thing is a farce. Now, add to this the fact that only 6% of those who died with COVID did not have any underlying conditions. The other 94% had an average of 2.6 comorbidities. How many deaths listed as COVID were actually the result of other causes? How many cases of COVID were the inevitable false positive result of an inherently flawed test? As you don your mask and condemn anti-vaxxers, do you ever ponder such questions? And do you ever ponder the cost of you and so many others believing in a pandemic founded on a faulty test? When we come back, I will provide a small sampling of what the PCR disaster has wrought across the globe. The faulty PCR tests led directly to lockdowns, which in the US destroyed small businesses, increased homelessness, shattered our collective mental health, and so much more. 
but we were told it was worth it because, hey, we're all in this together. For example, in the early days of COVID, pariah turned hero turned back to pariah, former New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo tweeted, we're not going, we're not willing to sacrifice one to 2% of New Yorkers. That's not who we are. We will fight to save every life we can. I am not giving up. Now it sounds noble, but since when is any aspect of our culture designed to adhere to such a sentiment? If our standing goal was to never sacrifice one to 2% of New Yorkers, we would, for example, lower the legal speed limit to maybe 15 miles an hour. The state would prohibit corporations from marketing any product with even a 2% chance of hurting a consumer. Junk food available on every corner? That's not who we are. Banish it, ASAP. We will fight to save every life we can, he said. Okay, let's do away with tax breaks for the rich. Use that money instead to fund domestic violence shelters and suicide hotlines. Decree that no medical professional or emergency room could ever turn away a single patient. Find safe housing for every homeless person. Ban cigarettes and alcohol. No flight could take off until every inch of every plane has been quadruple checked for hours. I am not giving up. Really? Well, then screw it. Give every New Yorker a bulletproof vest and a monthly check of $5,000 to stay home if they feel safer that way. Now, if I sound sarcastic, that's not my primary goal. I'm merely pointing out that long before the pandemic, we collectively created a way of life that is unfair, dangerous, violent, and deadly in more ways than we could possibly name. All the best intentions in the world can't build a protective shield around the beings that we love. And let's be radically honest here. No one's intentions always fall into the best category. We cut corners, take shortcuts, exploit, and knowingly or unknowingly, directly or indirectly, we put others at risk. On a corporate and government level, the scale of this risk is breathtaking. We will fight to save every life we can, well, that's useful rhetoric during a hostage crisis or when some kids are trapped in a cave. But if it were truly our collective goal, our world would look far, far, far different than it does today. Our society is one based on callous, self-serving trade-offs. Small groups of homo sapiens get to thrive at the expense of all other sentient beings. For, year, for the past year, tens of millions were stuck at home, lacking social content, contact and praying for a meager stimulus check. In 2020 alone, workers, U.S. workers lost $3.7 trillion, while U.S. billionaires gained $3.9 trillion. Some 493 individuals became new billionaires, and an additional 8 million Americans dropped below the poverty line. That's not who we are. Au contraire, it is precisely who we are and have been for quite a while. And the global fallout of the lockdowns are literal proof of this. So fashion, fasten your seatbelts for a few examples of how terrible a toll the lockdowns have exacted on the third world. Because thanks to so-called quarantine, famine is looming in Yemen, South Sudan, Burkina Faso, and northeastern Nigeria, with 16 other countries slightly behind in that trajectory towards catastrophe. During the lockdowns, laborers had no income and patients couldn't get medicine. 
Campaigns that battle malaria, polio, AIDS, and vitamin A deficiency were left in disarray. The disruption of such programs have, has tangible impact. For example, campaigns against female genital mutilation may result in 2 million more girls enduring genital cutting. Reduced access to contraception may lead to 15 million unintended pregnancies, while some 13 million additional girls may be forced into child marriages. 2.1 million children were born to low body mass indexed women. The World Bank says that an additional 72 million children will be pushed into illiteracy and about 10,000 additional children are dying each month from hunger due to the lockdowns based on faulty PCR tests. Take a good look around at your next segregated concert to get an idea of what 10,000 humans look like. Which brings me to what I like to call spiritual fallout because over the past two years, fear has become the ultimate status symbol. Virtue signaling now consists of being more frightened and more panicked than others. You don't have to actually do anything to be considered good. Recently, I was walking in my neighborhood when I passed a man wearing two COVID masks. Nothing unusual for sure these days, but the mask on the outside had these words printed on it. I can't breathe. It wasn't just a COVID mask, mind you. It was a woke, anti-racist COVID mask. So after I made certain that Alanis Morissette wasn't filming another video nearby, I began pondering the state of activism and mask wearing as we head into 2022. Because so many of my former activist comrades are aggressively and demonstrably pro-mask. Why are the so-called rebels of the world currently the most adamant when it comes to enforcing the rules? What happened to question authority? I have two words for you, virtue signaling. Think about it. Activists chant, march, carry signs, hold candlelight vigils, use the profile picture design of the day, put on puppet shows, hold hands in the shape of a peace sign, celebrate symbolic arrests, and never stop posting on social media. And here's another thing they always do. They make sure we know just how good they see themselves to be. They're so desperate to be perceived as righteous and woke that they never actually change anything or help anyone. And then in a case of sweet serendipity, along comes the COVID mask. They get to literally wear their virtue on their faces. It was love at first sight for woke world. Has there ever been an easier way for activists to signal their virtue? And they also, and meanwhile, they'll also attempt to silence and demonize anyone who doesn't wear a mask. Because if there's one thing the woke crowd loves more than anything, it's enforcing rules. I wear my mask to help others, they tweet and post over and over. Why would they ever take it off? This is the easiest form of activism in history. Never again will their undying commitment to social justice be questioned. Indeed, there's nothing like the muffled sound of, we are unstoppable, another world is possible, being chanted through a mask or two, adorned with a radical slogan. To them and so many others, I declare, while you smugly support masks and mandates, two million more girls 
are enduring genital mutilation. While you orgasm over vaccines and boosters, 13 million additional girls may be forced into child marriages. While you robotically repeat the numbers produced by a faulty PCR test, 2.1 million children are born to low body mass index women. And while you refuse to even entertain opposing viewpoints, 10,000 additional children are dying each month from hunger. But somehow in 2021 and beyond, you are part of the we're all in this together crowd. For about 20 minutes now, I have shared an incredible amount of facts along with some personal commentary. So perhaps you're wondering, how is it that none of this information is widely known? Well, in episode two, I went into some detail about the modus operandi of corporate owned media. Now I'd like to add a little to that analysis within the context of how so many people have collectively reacted to the coverage of the pandemic. And to do that, please allow me to introduce the Gelman amnesia effect. Murray Gelman was a physicist and he discovered and named the quark. One of his closest friends was the novelist turned film director, Michael Crichton, perhaps best known for Jurassic Park. Based on interactions with his physicist friend, Crichton coined the term Gelman amnesia effect. And here's the basic premise. Brought in, he wrote about newspapers. I'm bringing it up into the internet here. So you click on an article on some subject you know well. You read the article and immediately recognize that the journalist has no understanding of either the facts or the issues at hand. Often the article is so wrong, as Crichton himself explained, it actually presents the story backward, reversing cause and effect. Crichton called this the wet streets cause rain story. The web now is full of them. So you read with exasperation or amusement the multiple errors in the story, but then you click elsewhere on the website and read as if the rest of it was somehow more accurate than the bullshit you just read. You click away and instantly you forget what you know. Now, every single person listening to this podcast has subjects that they know well, some subjects they know extremely well. Therefore, I invite you to start consuming content through this lens. Let's say your thing is birds and you cringe when some major media outlet botches an article about Blue Jays. Keep this reality in mind when you read anything on any topic that you don't know well. FYI, there is just as good a chance that some journalists did a half-assed or biased job on those articles too. So pro tip immediately start applying the Gelman amnesia theory to everything you read about COVID-19 and the, the official response to it. What you just heard is only some of the copious context needed to recognize how intensely you are being manipulated 24-7. And I didn't even get into the vaccines. So I invite you to listen carefully, check my facts, and then share this episode far and wide. And if you like what, I've, what you've heard so far with my first three episodes of Post Woke, I also invite you to please get involved. Subscribe, share the links, and get in touch. See the show notes for all the info you need on that. I could really use your support, and a monthly subscription is an excellent way to start. Now, as always, 
I'm going to end this episode with a short story. The date was January 12, 2013. The location was Blue Stockings Bookstore in New York City's Lower East Side. The event was a literally overflowing standing room only talk by yours truly. Every square inch of the store was jam-packed with activists of all stripes. At some point during my presentation, I declared, I'm gonna go out on a limb and take a guess that the world has more than enough corporate lawyers, investment bankers, Wall Street executives, and real estate brokers. If you agree, clap your hands. This got much applause. That went well, so I feel safe to play another hunch, I continued. I also say that the world could never have enough dreamers, poets, artists, and activists, and romantics, visionaries, fighters, militants, radicals, and non-conformists. Who agrees with that? Clap your hands. Now we got really loud applause there. So motivated by this response, I decided to borrow a little something from Steve Martin's old stand-up routine. I asked, how many non-conformists do we have here in blue stockings tonight? In a flash, everyone's hand was up. Okay then, I'd like all you rebels to take the non-conformist pledge with me. I said this with a dimply grin and I asked, are you ready? Which brought some cheers. So I asked, raise your left hand and repeat after me. With a bookstore full of self-proclaimed radicals quite pleased by the prospect of breaking with tradition by raising their left hand, I commenced the pledge. I am a non-conformist. Everyone enthusiastically repeated that line. I think for myself. Everyone enthusiastically repeated that line. I do not repeat what other people tell me to say. Everyone started to enthusiastically repeat that line before finally catching on and starting to laugh. I also laughed and I warned them that they needed to work on such easy obedience. In retrospect, I should have left the microphone, bolted out the door, and never looked back. Obviously, what we need, what this planet needs, are genuine nonconformists not virtue signalers, signalers. So this is a golden opportunity for me to come up with an interactive way to learn a little bit more about you, my audience. I am asking you now to either send me an email, um, like a written email, or reply in the comments if you're a paid subscriber, or perhaps best of all, record a very short audio clip and email it to me. And my email is in the show notes. And I'm asking you to answer one of either of these questions. The first question is, what does it mean to be a nonconformist? Or number two, why am I a nonconformist? And so just tell me what it is about you that makes you, in your eyes, a nonconformist, or just tell me what it means in general to be a nonconformist. Um, I ask you to keep this brief just for the sake of me being able to fit it in um, and it, let me know if you want me to use your name or not. And I think it would be fun if you, if you recorded 15 to 30 seconds of audio because I could string them together and add them to the uh, next podcast or the one after that. And it would be a way for us to interact and for me to learn a little bit more about you in order to help shape the future of this podcast. So I look forward to hearing from you very soon. And again, I thank you for all your support. And I will be back next week with another exciting episode. And remember, in the meantime, keep your guard up.